Lord in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the work of Christ is finished, that we cannot add anything to it. That, Lord, in your unfathomably, um, unfathomably great mercy, you sent your Son to die for us to be raised. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you and we adore you this morning. And we ask now that as we open your word, uh, you would give us fresh humility. And Lord, as we stand under the authority of your word, and Father, that you, by your Spirit, would bring encouragement to us, uh, change our course if it needs changing. And Lord, may you be glorified in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. When you get into a vehicle and you put the key into the ignition, um, turn the key, a whole process of things happens in a split second uh, in order to start your vehicle. Fundamental in the whole process is the vehicle's battery. It's the battery, of course, that sends electrical current to the starter, and the starter cranks the engine. But without the battery and its electrical current, of course, you won't be able to start the vehicle. The battery provides the juice that is necessary uh, for the whole process. Well, friends, what we see in the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9 is that there is a battery of sorts that fuels and powers an entire process. The battery in question is the Word of God. The battery is the revealed voice of God in the Scriptures. And that power source has the effect of bringing Daniel to his knees in prayer, and it causes Daniel to pray in a specific way for specific things, with a specific attitude or posture. Now, in Daniel 7, just to remind us, because it's been a little while since we were in Daniel, in Daniel 7, and again in Daniel chapter 8, we had two very powerful visions that God had granted to Daniel. But as chapter 9 starts now, we get something very different. The visions stop for now, and we join the now elderly Daniel in his study. He's studying the scriptures. The first verse of the chapter gives us both a date and a personality. The date is the first year of Darius, which would be 539 BC, if we're keeping track. And the personality here is this Darius son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, in an earlier sermon, we suggested that either Darius is another name for Cyrus, the king of Persia, or Darius was a top general of Cyrus's, who was put in charge of the realm of the Chaldeans, or the realm of the Babylonians. The important thing in verse 1 is to understand that what's about to happen here was happening right at the very start of Persian rule. 
just after Babylon had finally been defeated. Well, Daniel continues in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Notice here that Daniel is studying the books, and the books here are specifically linked with the prophet Jeremiah. So the long and the short of it is here, friends, is this, that Daniel, this Old Testament prophet, had in his possession there in Babylon a copy of the book written by another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. Now it could be that Daniel is looking here at the second scroll of Jeremiah that Baruch had copied down after King Jehoiakim had burned the first one. And you can read about that if you're interested in Jeremiah chapter 36. (coughs) So Daniel now, he's well, well into his 80s. And he's doing some Bible study. And you know, there are a few, few things sweeter, I think, and more wonderful than elderly persons who remain committed to studying the Scriptures. Elderly Daniel is studying away here, and even in his Old Testament time period, he regards the written words of Jeremiah, notice, as being the words of God. Daniel discerns something in the Word of God. He reads Jeremiah 25.11, and he reads Jeremiah 29.10. And Daniel sees there that 70 years had to pass... (coughs) Excuse me, frog in my throat this morning. 70 years had to pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. And as Daniel studies in the first year now of the Persian kingdom, he knows that the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah must soon be up. That things were at the tail end. That very soon God was going to bring his people back to their land and restore the temple and restore the city. But as Daniel read, as Daniel studied the verses that surrounded those two 70 years prophecies in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, he saw more. In Jeremiah 25, he saw that the 70 years of exile to Babylon had been a deserved exile. That successful attack of Nebuchadnezzar into Israel the consequent exile of God's people to Babylon had been the sad prize, quote-unquote, for his people's failure to listen to the word of their God and to obey him. Their sin and their rebellion against God had been the cause of their exile out of the promised land. (coughs) But then as Daniel flipped over to Jeremiah 29... 
he saw that despite the deserved tragedy that was the exile, God held out to his people the hope of restoration, the hope of forgiveness. And to quote the well-known, often misused, Jeremiah 29.11, God, in sheer unmerited grace toward his wicked people, had plans for their welfare, for a future and a hope. Not a single one of them deserved such benefits from God, but such is his grace. So Daniel, in his Bible study, saw that the 70 years of exile was soon to be over. God, in sheer grace, would restore his people. But Daniel did not miss that other element of truth, which was that the exile had been deserved because of his and his people's sin against God. But friends, the exile was winding down. The people would be going back to their land. Babylon had fallen. And you might think that with this exciting prospect now of return to the land, that Daniel would simply break out in joyful praise to God, that he might burst out into happy thanksgiving to God, or with his study of Jeremiah 25 in mind, where Verses 12 through 14 of that chapter had prophesied how God would lay waste to Babylon. You might think that Daniel might be kind of rubbing his hands together in glee, pointing now to defeated Babylon and saying, justice is sweet. You Babylonians, you get exactly what you deserve. But we need to see here that Daniel doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't burst into praise. He doesn't point a happy finger at Babylon's destruction. He doesn't post a YouTube video gloating over their much-deserved demise. My friends, I want you to watch now how the battery, how the live spiritual current in the book of Jeremiah affects Daniel, how it causes him to act. There's no happy, clappy praise here. Nor is there any self-righteous, I told you so, pointing toward Babylon. Verse 3. What effect does the study of God's Word have on Daniel? Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Remember, Daniel has just been studying Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, God had said, you will bakash me, in Hebrew. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And now in Daniel 9.3, Daniel says, I turn my face to the Lord God, bakashing him, 
seeking him by prayer. So Daniel is doing here, he is obeying what Jeremiah 29, 13 called him to do. He is bakashing, seeking God. And Daniel is doing this seeking in a posture of humility and repentance before God. Daniel pleads for mercy, notice, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel fasts. He stops eating as a sign of humility, as a sign of dependence upon the Lord. And Daniel puts on a coarse, black, goat's hair garment, sackcloth, as a sign of Daniel's mourning over sin. And Daniel sprinkles ashes on his head, another sign of mourning and humility before the holy, majestic Lord. Verse 4. I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession. Now I pause here to ask all of us, myself very much included, how often does confession of sin figure into our praying? The Word of God encourages confession of sin. In Exodus 32, Moses confesses before God the great sin of God's people making the golden calf, and he asks God there for forgiveness. In Numbers 14, Moses confesses the iniquity of the people, pleads with God that he would pardon them. In Psalm 51, David confesses to God his sin and his iniquity and pleads with God for cleansing. In Ezra 9, Ezra confesses to God the iniquity and the guilt of the people. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah does the same thing. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector confesses he is a sinner and pleads for mercy. In Matthew 3, 6, the people confess their sins as they get baptized. In 1 John 1, 9, we are told to do what? To confess our sins and there find forgiveness and the cleansing that God provides. So the Word of God, friends, encourages the confession of sin before God. How much time do we spend in the confession of sin when we go to God? Well, Daniel, Daniel will spend a significant amount of time now confessing his sin and the sin of his people to God. But first notice, notice here, Daniel starts his prayer how? By exalting God. Daniel says, I prayed to Yahweh my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and chesed, steadfast love, with those who love him and keep his commandments. As Dale Davis has put it here, Daniel prays God's fearfulness and God's faithfulness. 
God is fearful. God is great. And God is awesome. And we should rightly tremble before such a God, yes? Our God is incomparable. There is none like Him. There is no God besides Him. He deserves all glory and all honor. And He deserves it from frail and finite creatures like you and I. God is fearful. But God is also faithful. As Daniel acknowledges here, God keeps covenant. Yes? Hallelujah. God keeps covenant in contrast with human beings who are prone to be faithless and to break covenant. Our God, friends, is fearful and faithful. And Daniel acknowledges that before the Lord as he begins his prayer. Now, have you ever messed up royally and then you felt genuinely truly, fully sorry for what you did. So very sorry that you feel compelled to communicate fully and to communicate comprehensively your folly to the person that you have offended. You say to the offended person, I am really really sorry for what I've done. And then the person might try to jump in and say something like, well, it's okay. You're forgiven. But then you feel in your very genuine penitence that you must detail your wrongdoing even more. You say, no, no. Hear me out. I was wrong. And here are the ways that I was wrong, and you need to understand that I understand how wrong I was and the ways in which I was wrong. And then you go ahead and detail and flesh out your wrongdoing with an attitude of repentance and apology. Well, friends, that's sort of what Daniel does here now before God for the next 12 verses. Daniel is penitent. He is genuinely sorry from the core of his very heart. Daniel feels the need. He is compelled to pray before God a lengthy, leisurely confession of wrongdoing and sin. And again, friends, we can't miss this this lengthy confession of sin that Daniel gives here before God has been caused by, has been fueled by, his time in God's Word. Daniel is an Israelite, and Daniel had been reading in those chapters of Jeremiah about Israel's exile into Babylon that was soon to end by the grace of God. He's been reading how that tragic exile had been caused by what? Caused by Israel's wickedness and Israel's rebellion against God. In sackcloth and ashes, Daniel prays in verse 5, we have sinned. 
And not only have we sinned, we have done wrong. And not only have we sinned and done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And not only have we sinned, done wrong, and acted wickedly, we have rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, O God. Now notice this, Daniel shows, doesn't he, how deeply aware he is of the abundance of evil in himself and in his people. And do notice very carefully, friends in Christ, notice that Daniel uses the word we. We have sinned. And the we and us language will continue throughout this entire passage as Daniel catalogs and details the wrongdoing and the evil of Israel. Now, by using the words we and us, Daniel is doing what? He is including himself in the group who had done all this evil before the Lord. And Daniel means it. And we know he means it because down in verse 20 he will say that this long confession of sin here was both a confession of his sin, he says, and the sin of his people Israel. We have sinned, Daniel says. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. Now don't miss this, friends. Daniel would not... And Daniel could not exclude himself from the treachery, from the rebelliousness of his people Israel. Daniel knew the truth of Romans 3.10 and Romans 3.23 before those verses were ever written. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, no, not one, including himself. So listen, friends, Daniel will not go onto social media and position himself as somehow apart from or better than that poor soul who sinned, who's now being attacked and mocked and judged self-righteously from every corner. Daniel won't join with that crowd because Daniel understands that Daniel has enough trouble with himself. Daniel sees himself, listen, he sees himself as so desperately, desperately in need of the mercy of God. Daniel knows himself as a person who is direly needing to repent before God. And so Daniel will not and cannot separate himself from his sinful countrymen as somehow being better or more righteous than they are. Daniel knows that it's always terrible practice, terrible practice, and also a sign of spiritual immaturity to rank his righteousness against that of another person. To point to that person's failures while pointing back to his own supposed successes. 
Daniel knows that as he stands before the holy God of the universe, that he is just exactly like every other person he will ever meet in desperate need of the mercy and the grace that God holds out. We have sinned, and we have done wrong, and we have acted wickedly, and we have rebelled and turned aside, O Lord. The we of Daniel is a sign of great spiritual maturity. It is a sign of spiritual sanity. Daniel prays his heart out here before the Lord. And again, I think that battery that was Jeremiah 29 is giving juice to Daniel's prayer. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 14 has God there calling on his exiled people like Daniel, calling on them to pray, to call out, to seek God with their whole heart. And if they do that, as Daniel is doing here, Verse 14 of that chapter says, I, God, will be found by you, declares the Lord. Isn't that good news? And I will what? Restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. Not only in Babylon, but there's evidence in the Old Testament that some were driven into Egypt also. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And Daniel continues his fervent sackcloth and ashes earnest prayer in verse 6. He says to God, We have not listened <laughs> to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel confesses here the problem of spiritual deafness. We have not listened to your prophets, O Lord. To listen to your prophets would be to listen to you. But we have failed to do that. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the, what? Treachery that they have committed against you. Daniel is a person who understands where righteousness is to be found. It's to be found in God. But as for Daniel and his people, to them belonged the open shame of being captured, whisked out of their land into a foreign land by their captors, while their city and their temple were utterly destroyed. And all of it, says Daniel, had been because of the treachery, because of the unfaithfulness and the idolatry that the people of Israel had committed against their husband, God. Verses 8 through 10, To us, Yahweh, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. 
to the Lord our God belong what? Mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in His laws which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Now again, friends, if you haven't noticed already, just notice here how leisurely, if uncomfortably, Daniel catalogs Israel's folly. It's almost like we want him to stop. But Daniel will take time to confess the shame, the sin, the rebellion, the failure to listen, the failure to obey. But there's also hope here, isn't there? There's great hope here. In verse 9, Daniel voices to God how he, God, is merciful and forgiving. Do you know that today? Now, in the original Hebrew here in this verse, both of these terms, it's interesting, they're both in the plural. Mercies and forgivenesses. Which means simply that God has an abundance of both. For all the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion that Daniel is cataloging here and taking time to do it, God's mercies and forgivenesses are greater. Grace greater than all our sin. Well, let's go forward to verse 11. Daniel says to God, All Israel, there's no one excluded, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And notice what he says next. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been what? Poured out upon us. Poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. Again, Daniel, we need to see, is a man of the Word of God. His prayer is fueled by, his prayer is juiced by the Word of God. Daniel knows from the Word of God exactly why this exile that they have experienced has been poured out. The exile was poured out because the people sinned and because God is faithful to His Word. He is faithful to the curse and oath that He had promised in the law of Moses. Where? Well, way back in Leviticus 26, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God spelled out for verse after verse after verse. He spelled out in gory detail. He warned of the curses that would befall Israel should they turn away from Him. Should they break covenant with Him. And in Leviticus 26, 32 and 33, God warned there, way back in Leviticus, of this exact exile that they had now experienced. God said He would do it for their rebellion against Him, and He did it. You see, friends, God is faithful to His Word. As Dale Davis has written, 
we sing, great is thy faithfulness. But we forget that there can be a dark side to that faithfulness. In giving Israel 70 years of desolation, God was being faithful to His promise. Faithful to what He had warned them about. Great is His faithfulness. Verse 12, Daniel continues, He has confirmed His words. Great is His faithfulness. Which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And then verse 13, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Now listen. Yet... Yet, we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. So Daniel is sitting there and he's praying with a growling stomach in sackcloth and ashes. And in his humble penitence, he's plagued by this thought. That despite, despite the severe judgment on Israel's sin that was the exile, despite that, that Israel still hasn't learned her lesson. Daniel worries that repentance hasn't really happened. That Bibles across the land remain dusty and untouched on people's shelves in their homes. No one gaining insight by God's truth. My friends, how calcified (laughs) and how stubborn and how stiff-necked the human heart can be. Sure, the people could soon pack their bags and they could physically returned to the the land. But what was really crucial, listen, what was really crucial is that the people themselves would return to God. That their hearts would be broken over their folly and in genuine repentance that they would then plead with God as their only hope for mercy. My friends, Daniel was concerned that Israel, God's people, were not in the posture before God that is described in Ezekiel 36, verse 31. Now, Ezekiel 36, verse 31 will sound extreme, and it will sound uncomfortable to many of us today if we have been swept up in all the self-glory, self-exaltation teaching which unfortunately has come into the corners, some corners of the church like an acid. God in Ezekiel 36, 31 comes along and he says this to his people. (laughs) Strong language. You will loathe yourselves 
for your iniquities and your abominations. And those words come in the context, listen, of God promising His Spirit and a new heart to His people. Again, Dale Davis, I think, is, he's so perceptive here. He says that what the Spirit of God indwelling us will do is it will produce a new sadness that mourns and agonizes over sin. Bringing about what the Puritans call perpetual brokenheartedness. Daniel expresses concern in verse 13 that he and his countrymen are not brokenhearted enough over their rebellion against God. Their confession of sin before the Lord had not been at the level, had not been of the genuine quality that would be appropriate for the evils that they had committed. My friends, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must make a practice as we before our great and thrust, we must make a practice of confessing our sin before Him. And as James 5.16 commands us, confessing our sins one to another. Confession of sin is something that marks the church. It must be our practice, both privately it should be our practice, and together as His body. In verse 14, Daniel says that it's because of an unrepentant, stubborn posture that Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works that He has done and we have not obeyed His voice. And then in verse 15, down through the end of our passage in verse 19, Daniel finally gets now to the request that he makes of God. And now, O, o, o Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Notice here, how Daniel refers in this verse to that super significant event that happened in Israel's past, right? The exodus out of Egypt. The exodus that God had wrought and the exodus that had made God internationally renowned, internationally famous. And the major and minor prophets of Israel saw Israel's release from the exile from the Babylonian captivity as a new exodus, a second exodus by which God's fame and God's reputation would spread across the earth in a fresh way. Now, as we look at the final three verses of our, our passage this morning, I want us to read the three verses as a whole because I want you to see something here. So there they are. I know it's small on the screen. I'll read them through, beginning at verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, 
Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine. We've heard that before in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, did you notice the 18 instances of the word your in those four verses? 18 instances. Each your refers to God. Your righteous acts your anger, your wrath, your city, your holy hill, your people, your covenant. On and on and on. Your, your, your. It's like the eyes of Daniel's heart are laser beam focused now on God. God's desires, God's things, God's attributes, God's honor, God's fame, God's plans, God's promises. Daniel is praying strictly according to God's will and God's purposes and God's promises. God in his word had promised restoration after exile. And now Daniel is crying out to God that it would happen. As Sinclair Ferguson has said, quote, the secret of prayer, friends, the secret is, of prayer is that we should ask in accordance with God's will. The prayer of faith, he says, asks in unwavering trust for what God has already promised to do. Faith is not a matter of looking within ourselves to see how much we feel capable of requesting. What faith does is to search the Scripture to see what God has promised to do. And this is just exactly what Daniel does here in these final three verses. And do notice, friends, very carefully, that Daniel appeals to God's own reputation here. In verse 15, Daniel had reminded God <laughs> that God made a name for Himself in performing the exodus. And then in verse 17, Daniel says to God, notice, for your own sake, O Lord. 
make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. That is to say, Lord, by restoring your Jerusalem sanctuary and returning your people to your land, you will clear your name. Right now, the nations are looking at our city, ruined as it currently is, and they're looking at us here, exiled as we are in Babylon, and they're thinking, what sort of God do these Israelites serve if this is the result? O Lord, by bringing us back to the land and restoring your temple, your name and your reputation will be made great again amongst the nations. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. I wonder, friends, do we ever pray this way? Do we ever plead for God's honor as we pray? As Dale Davis has said, he's so helpful here too. He said, he gives suggestions on how we can pray this way. What honor will it bring you, Lord, if that son of mine is converted? What praise will come to you, Jesus, if this marriage is renewed? What credit it will be to your name, Jesus, if you help me walk through this hard trouble I'm experiencing, growing stronger and growing sweeter in faith. Praying the honor and fame and reputation of God, as Daniel does here, concerned in our prayers for the glory of God. And then finally, I want you to notice in verse 18 something very instructive here and important, which is the poverty in Daniel. The poverty in Daniel as he prays. He says toward the end of the verse, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Exactly right. We might render it like this. We do not present our pleas before you because of any righteousness in us because there isn't any. <laughs> Daniel has just finished that rather painful detailing of sin and wickedness and deafness and rebellion in himself and in his people. And with no righteousness to be found in himself or in his people, Daniel says to God, we present our pleas to you because of your great mercy. Your mercy, O oh God, is our only hope. You are a God who delights in mercy. Make it so, O oh Lord. Have mercy on us. Forgive us our grave rebellion against you. Now, I'm not sure, but maybe you're a person here today who's bothered by your sin. Are you a person here today who is bothered by your sin? Well, through our study of God's Word today, or perhaps through your own private study of the Word, your co conscience has been arrested, and you recognize your sin against God. The Puritan William Gurnall, 
called our God-given conscience a sergeant, which God employs to arrest the sinner. Perhaps that sergeant, your conscience, is driving you to confess sin in a heartfelt way before the Lord. Well, you need to know, friends, you need to know that God is merciful. Another Puritan, Richard Sibbs, encourages us to think of a, a single flower, just one flower, in which all the sweetness, all the fragrance of every flower in the world is packed into that one flower. That flower would be overwhelmingly sweet, would it not? Well, Sib says, that flower is like merciful Jesus. Sibs wrote, in Christ, all perfections of mercy and love meet. <laughs> How great then must that mercy be that lodges in so gracious a heart. Yes? And so, my friend, don't delay. Go to the merciful, sweet, and gracious Lord and confess your sin and there find His mercy. And please do take this to the bank this week from 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is, say it with me, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you.